All right, so if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Chris Reed, and I'm the discipleship minister here at the church at Woodbine. If I have had the chance to meet you, um, there's something you may or may not know about me. Um, so that is that when I was in college and when I was in seminary, I drove a school bus. So um, just take take a minute to let that soak in. Wheels on the bus go round and round. I'm driving. Big yellow. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did that when I was in seminary in Oregon, and I uh, would do like classic home to school, school to home. But I also got to do field trips as well, which was pretty fun because you take kids on a field trip and you sit and wait and you get paid the whole time you're waiting. And usually I'm reading. So that's, that's good. It was a pretty good gig. So one time I was assigned a field trip where I took about 50 kids, uh, you know, with some teachers to a museum out in the woods. It's like this geological museum where you look at rocks. And I was told on the way out there that there was a really tight turn to get into the parking lot. So I'm like, okay, got it. So I go out there and um, <clears throat> I start getting, you know, drive for quite a while, get pretty close to the museum. And I'm like, ooh, that is a pretty tight turn. That's a pretty tight hairpin turn. So I did my best to take it as wide as possible. And as I came back around, I kept getting closer and closer to this big pine tree. And I'm like, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. I'm not sure I can make it. I'm not going to make it. So the, the bus started like rubbing against this tree. I'm like, what's that squeaking noise? That, that's, that's you rubbing the tree with the bus. And of course, there's 50 spectators just watching me do this. Like, um, is this okay? Um, so I back after I kind of rubbed the tree a little bit, I backed up and then I was able to make my way in. So, you know, the kids get off and they go inside and everything. And I go out and look at the bus and I'm like, well, there's a dent. But it's not that bad, you know. A lot of these buses have dents on them. It's probably, well, should I, should I confess or should I not? Hmm. Like, they'll probably find out, but they might not be able to track it back to me. Should I say something? So I decided, okay, when I get back, I'll say something. So I figured it was an honest mistake, you know. So I get back to the bus yard, and uh, I go into this office, and this, this guy, kind of a supervisor guy, I'm like, you know, you try to think of like the way to say something that's going to raise the least red flags, you know, like the least alarm. Um, you don't want to say I hit a tree. So I was like, I rubbed a tree, like, like rub, rubbing is racing or something like that, you know. So, and this guy got all, you know, he was kind of like smiling when I first saw him, but then he got this real serious look, his face totally changed, grabbed his coat and he grabbed like this dictation device where he could like record himself talking. He's like, come with me. So we go out to the bus and he's walking around and he's like, yeah, Mr. Reed, it's cost uh, over $5,000 worth of body damage, this vehicle, and he will have to undergo retraining. And I'm like, golly, this went from something to more pretty fast. And so retraining basically meant that I had to drive for like five hours with a trainer before I guess I could drive again. And so, um, <clears throat> I don't know, through that, uh, I, I think whenever I was riding with the trainer behind me and we're just driving around the city and I'm like, yes, I can stay between the lanes. Yes, I can miss that car. Yes, I can not hit that pedestrian. I don't know if he was telling that if I, if he could sense that maybe I was feeling a little um, self-conscious um, so I felt maybe a little embarrassed. I felt at the mercy of my supervisors. I wondered if I might get a nickname, you know, when you do something wrong, is anybody ever going to let this go? Am I going to be the bus bender? Um, you know, will, will you ever consider letting me take another trip? Cause we took a lot of trips that could be kind of, you know, kind of, you had to be a good driver, like drive up to Mount Hood where there's snow and stuff like that. Um, and I didn't want to be defined by a mistake that I made. 
all right? You probably don't either. I didn't want to be defined by a mistake that I made, and maybe the supervisor could tell that as we were driving around that I felt a little self-conscious, and he said something to me like this. He said, listen, just so you know, you're a good driver. He said, you're one of our better drivers, and as soon as this is over, I need you back out there. As soon as this is over, I need you back out there. And with that, I felt forgiven. I felt wanted. I felt reconciled. I felt accepted. And to me, for me personally, this story has always been a good example of grace and truth existing at the same time, of justice and grace existing at the same time. What I did was taken seriously. What I did was taken seriously, and it wasn't glazed over. And then I was forgiven, and it was totally forgotten, and it was never brought up again. And the reason I tell that story is because those themes of justice and grace existing at the same time, being given at the same time, are what are on display in our scripture passage for this morning. So you can follow along with your own pass or with your own um, copy of the scriptures. We're going to be in John chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 11. John 8, 1 through 11. There's actually pew Bibles in your pews if you haven't grabbed one of those in a while. That's fun. So open it up on your phone or follow along on the screen. But if you would stand with me, and I'm going to start, go ahead and stand with me and I'll read uh, our passage for us this morning, starting in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for your actions. This story happened. This is you in action. We praise you for your heart. We praise you for your actions. We praise you for your words. Teach us what you need us to know this morning from this passage. Uh, For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. So there's two questions that I believe this passage helps us address this morning. Two questions, which you can see on the screen. One is, how does Jesus interact with the sin in your life? How does Jesus interact with the sin in my life? And two, how do you interact with the sin in other people's lives? Because we see what Jesus is doing, and then we see what the Pharisees are doing. How does Jesus interact with the sin in your life, and how do you interact with the sin in other people's lives? So we'll take a minute to look at the first point, Jesus interacting with the sin in our lives. So 
As time has passed, this passage is slowly becoming more and more one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I love it because I think it encapsulates the heart of Jesus and it puts his heart on display for us to see. I believe that it's an expression of John 1.14. So John 1.14, when John opens up his gospel and he talks about the word coming here and the word being made flesh and dwelling among us, this story that we just read is the word dwelling among the people. It's the him in flesh dwelling among people. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. So what we witnessed even in this story was observing his glory. And it says that when Jesus walked around on this earth, that he was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. It can be hard for us to hold both of those things at the same time. But that's a lot of what I want to talk about this morning. Grace and truth go together. Jesus is not just full of grace, okay? If he was just full of grace, he would never right any of the wrongs in the world. And if he was just full of truth, we would get what we deserved, which is judgment and separation from him. But he is full of grace and truth. And so I look back at the story there in the middle of uh, chapter 9. It says, only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, Lord, she answered, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin so more. That very, no more, go and sin no more. Um, So that very last sentence has two parts to it. Jesus doesn't glaze over the fact that the woman has done something wrong. She has done something wrong. He doesn't glaze over it. And when he says, go and sin no more, he's implying that, yes, you did sin, and yes, you did something wrong. He takes it seriously, just like what I did as a bus driver was taken seriously. He says, go and sin no more. And this brings all kinds of Bible verses to mind, okay? So uh, Romans 3.23, for all all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's all kinds of Bible verses that we can think of where it talks about the fact that God hates our sin. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. But then at the same time, he says, I don't condemn you. He says, I don't hold it against you. And there's plenty of other Bible verses we can think of on this side that describe that. John 3.17 right after John 3.16. John 3.17 is one that comes to mind, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus loves you. And this is the nature of God, righteousness and mercy, justice and compassion, truth and grace. He doesn't sugarcoat the seriousness of what this woman has done, and neither does he rub it in her face. This is what we call loving the sinner and hating the sin. And in my life, what I've no- but what I what I have noticed in my life as I've met and interacted with so many different people, is that lots of us tend to lean one way or the other. I don't know that we're doing it on purpose, but we tend to lean that way or the other in the way we interact with other people, and also in our understanding of who God is. We tend to lean this way or the other. Some of us really like talking about God's grace, but we don't like talking about Him as judge. And some of us really like talking about God's justice, but from what I've noticed, sometimes people don't want to talk too much about his compassion because it may take away from his holiness. But they do go together. I think of, um, I know there's, there's, a, there's a girl I knew, and she said, one day when I'm a mom, I want to be firm but fair. That's, that's my vision for myself as a mother. That's what I want to be. I want to be firm but fair. 
those two things do go together. Maybe you had a parent that was that way. They would hold you to standards, but they would also give you a lot of grace and compassion. I also think this is a really simple example, but if I, you talk about something being two sides of the same coin, maybe you've heard that before and you're like, I'm not sure what that means. Okay. This is two sides of the same coin. If you look at a quarter and you look at heads, tails doesn't look anything like heads. Okay. Tails doesn't look anything like heads, but they're two sides of the same coin. That's another example of like how grace and truth, they may not look alike, but they are two sides of the same coin. And so one of the things we talk about in our mission statement as a church, as a family of churches, is that we want to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime with anybody. If you don't highlight grace and truth, you won't be engaging people with the whole gospel. We'll be engaging people with part of it. So, so one thing I would like to point out about this story is that in this story, this woman was surrounded by accusers. This woman was surrounded by accusers. Very strong word, accusers. She was surrounded by people that were highlighting her guilt and the punishment associated with her sin. And one thing I noticed in this passage um, is that there's at least three voices in our lives. There may be more. There probably is more. There's at least three voices in our lives that accuse us of the sin in our lives. Other people, ourselves, and Satan. We've done things wrong. You know you've done stuff wrong. Then there's people that keep accusing you. Maybe other people and their message to you is, look what you did. Look what you did. Look what you did. Keep looking at what you did. Look what you did. Feel ashamed. Keep looking at what you did. With ourselves, I'm such a screw-up. Man, I shouldn't have done that. Man, I'm probably, I'm such a screw-up. I'm such a screw-up. You accuse, you accuse, you accuse. And then even the devil, that's what he does. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You start to get in this loop in your head sometimes of being accused of your sin. And it makes me think specifically... The book of Revelation describes the devil as our accuser. So if you were to look at Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11, it says, The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God day and night, has been thrown down. The devil accuses us before God day and night. He says, guilty, 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 guilty. Then this passage goes on to say that they have conquered him. We have conquered him. If you are in Christ, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, we've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So I don't want to get into conversations with the devil, but if I was, when Satan says, you know, Chris, you're guilty, um, I would say you're right. But I would also say that's a half-truth. That's one side of the coin. And the devil's... One of his greatest playgrounds is half-truths. He's telling you something that's true, but it's only half the truth. You need to flip that coin over. And yeah, I'll agree with you that I'm guilty, but I'll also, I'll also say I'm forgiven. That I have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, not by anything in me. And it makes me think of the song, Before the Throne of God Above. These lyrics came to mind. When Satan tempts me to despair... Or my own accusations tempt me to despair. Or the fact that people in my life just won't let it go, and that tempts me to despair. And all these voices tell me of the guilt within. Upward I look. What, what 
What do you gaze at? What are you looking at? Are you looking at him? Are you looking at the accusations? What voice do you listen to? Are you listening to your voice, other people's voices? Listening to Jesus' voice? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And I think the most touching and important scene in this story is when all the accusers have left. So all the accusers have been dismissed. And this is the moment where everything gets quiet. And it's just Jesus and it's just her. And at first I was thinking, you know, he's looking into her her eyes and she's looking into his eyes. But then I was thinking more likely she probably couldn't look him in the eye. Maybe she had to divert her gaze. But what does he say to her? And that's my question for you. When you get quiet, if you can get quiet in this really loud world, when you get quiet and it's just you and him, what does he say to you? My hope would be that he says to you a message like this. 1 John 2.1 came to mind, which you should be able to read on the screen. This is what he says to you. When it's quiet and nobody's a part of the conversation except for you and him, he says, this is John talking, but he says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin, but I recognize the fact that you will. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hopefully you hear Jesus saying to you, I do take your sin seriously, but I want you to walk in freedom. I want you to walk in freedom. So I'd like to close out this first point by sharing uh, an analogy that I heard recently at the end of a TED Talk. It's hard for me to remember exactly what this guy was talking about in this TED Talk, but this was really powerful imagery. This guy, uh, he had a $20 bill. In his case, it was like 20 euros because it's like a European thing, but I'll say $20 bill because it's easier for me to say that. So he's got this really crispy $20 bill and he, and he holds it up and he's like, who would like this $20 bill? And I'm kind of actually interacting with the screen while, you know, while I'm, while I'm watching this. And I'm like, you know, barring any funny business and some sort of trickery, yes, I'll take the $20 bill if you hand it to me. And then he takes the $20 bill and he crumples it up in his hands like this to a really tight ball. And he goes, who wants the $20 bill now? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take the $20 bill. It's still $20. And he sticks the $20 bill in his mouth, literally. He puts, puts that dirty money in his mouth and he's... He starts chewing it like this. He's like, who wants a $20 bill now? Who wants it? And it's just getting more and more full of saliva. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. That's still, that's still $20. And then he, he spits it out on the ground, and he goes like this. And he goes, who, who still wants a $20 bill now? Picks it up. And he's like, who still wants a $20 bill? And... Uh, I'm like, I'll, I'll take it because it's still worth $20. And so who wants it? And, and some guy in the audience, and, and so this guy, he goes, why? Why do you still want this? It's crumpled up. It's wet. It's flattened and it's dirty. And this guy in the audience goes, because it's still $20. Because it still has value. And to me, that's the way it is with us. It's the same with you and me. No matter how crumpled up or dirty your life has become, 
And no matter how crumpled up or more dirty your life gets between now and the end of the day, God looks at you and he says you still have value. Might not have value to other people, who knows? But you do to him, and his is the opinion that matters the most. And when we interact with other people, we need to see them the same way. Which leads us to my second point, which is how do we interact with the sin in other people's lives? Well, I would say, in short order, we should interact with sin in the other people's lives the way Jesus interacts with the sin in our lives. He offers grace and truth. We should offer both grace and truth. One nice little um, encapsulation of both of these things together is from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, these two verses here, as followers of Jesus, we should, verse 15, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And then verse 32, we should forgive as we have been forgiven. But if we look at the example of the scribes and Pharisees, it's kind of nice because we see a couple of things not to do. Sometimes it's nice to say, okay, let's, let's look at something obviously not to do. One thing that we see that they did when they interacted with the sin in somebody else's life is they brought more shame on someone who was already guilty. They brought more shame on someone who was already guilty. Verses 3 and 4 say that the Pharisees caught the woman, and then they brought the woman, and then they made her stand in the middle. They made her, like, this is a pretty good spotlight right here. If we made you stand right here, and we talk about the things you did last week. Their goal was not to restore her. Their goal was to use her in some way. And interestingly enough, I'll tell you something kind of cool that came to mind uh, with this passage was Joseph and Mary, like the parents of Jesus, right? Um, It was assumed that Mary had had sex outside of marriage. And it says that the way Joseph wanted to handle it, Joseph was a righteous man because he did not want to disgrace her publicly, and he wanted to deal with the the matter privately. Interesting. So two passages I would give you in terms of how we interact with the sin in other people's lives. Coworkers, friends, family, people, people that we rub shoulders with uh, as, as we go about our lives. Matthew 18 and then Galatians 6.1. Just to briefly touch on those things, Matthew 18 tells us that uh, if your brother sins against you, the first thing it says is you go to him one-on-one. If he doesn't listen to you, then you bring one other person, two-on-one. If he doesn't listen to you, then you bring a group of people. But it starts out, I think to some degree, helping people retain their dignity, although confessing your sin inherently is kind of losing your dignity to some degree. You have to be willing to say, I was wrong. I, got, I, got, I, I did the wrong thing. Um, but this is what the Bible teaches us to do one-on-one, two-on-one with a group. And in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, you may be familiar with this. It says, if you see your brother in sin, you should restore him gently. So it doesn't say, if you see your brother in sin, you should ignore it. And it doesn't say, if you see your brother in sin, you should get all over him for it. You should try to restore him gently. Interestingly enough, it says, if you do this, in Galatians 6, 2, it says you will be um, carrying one another's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. 
The second thing that the Pharisees did wrong was they interacted with the sin in this woman's life without an awareness of the sin in their own life. If you're trying to help somebody with the sin in their life and you're not paying any attention to the sin in your own life, that's not the way to go. So one of the things that brings to mind is uh, uh, Matthew chapter 7. You guys have probably all heard this, um, I th- that you need to work on taking the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone, help someone else take a splinter out of their eye. And this passage goes, goes on to say that you should judge not lest ye be judged. And the standard by which you judge other people is the standard by which you will be judged. So it's interesting to me that Jesus says, the person without sin among you is the one that should cast the first stone. You've heard that phrase. I've heard that phrase. The person with, go ahead and throw a stone if you have no sin. The only person qualified to throw a stone was Jesus. He was the only person in that crowd who had no sin and could rightfully throw the stone, could rightfully judge. And he who had the right to do it didn't. He chooses not to throw the stone. So I'd like to offer you um, a picture where maybe you can run a little diagnostic on yourself in terms terms of how you interact with the sin in other people's lives. So what we have here on the, the horizontal Compassion. You can use different words for this. Compassion, mercy, kindness. Um, on the up-down, the vertical, justice, say righteousness. Okay? And we'll start in the bottom right. So maybe you can find yourself in this grid somewhere. If you are a person that is high in compassion but has a, have a low sense of justice, you can tend to be a person who's too permissive. You allow things to continue that should not be allowed to continue. You have a problem putting your foot down because maybe you want people's approval too much. So you're great at having a caring heart, but you don't have a very high sense of right and wrong. So if you move to the bottom left, you're low in compassion and low in justice. Obviously, that's two strikes. Okay, that's that's, that's not where you want to be. Um, So the idea here is that you don't really keep to any kind of standards at all and you don't really care. And so you abandon people. You ignore people. Do you find yourself there sometimes? Do you find yourself in the upper left-hand quadrant where you're real big on making sure things are done right, but you're not very caring? And so you come across as judgmental, maybe mean, critical, harsh. And you say, I just call it like I see it. I just That's what I do. I shoot people straight. And you're like, yeah. But you know, it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong attitude. And so... You almost got it right, but you missed it just a little bit. And maybe you can't understand why, because you're doing the right thing, but there's no compassion there. And hopefully we would find ourselves as followers of Christ, as little Christs, Christians, that we're shooting for that upper right-hand quadrant where we have both compassion and justice. We, how many times do we forgive our brother? Seventy times seven. Not just seven times. As many times as they ask, we forgive. And we also believe that discipline's a good thing. The book of Hebrews tells us that, you know, what, what father doesn't discipline his own children? That we shouldn't despise the discipline of the Lord. We don't believe that discipline is a bad thing. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. There, you have to love someone to a pretty large degree to be able to call them on the carpet and maybe risk the relationship. I care about you so much. 
that I'm willing to make you mad at me because I know this is what you need most in your life. That's a deep kind of love, and that's just as deep as a straight compassion. So I'd like to close with just asking you a couple of questions related to everything we've just heard. And if, if our worship team would like to go ahead and come on up, you guys can be getting set up. Uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Just asking ourselves, what's in our heart this morning? Um, are you the kind of person who's willing to speak the hard truths that people need to hear into their lives? Do you struggle with that? Are you good at that? Do you need to get better at that? Is there something that's blocking you from speaking a hard truth into people's lives and calling a spade a spade? We need to do that. And not only individually, but as a congregation. Are we the kind of church that is seen in the community as taking a stand for anything? Are we the kind of church in the community that is seen as taking a stand for anything? On the flip side of the coin, are you the kind of person that people feel safe making a mistake around? Do people feel safe confessing their sin to you? Or are you the kind of person that remembers things people have done? You remember things people have done. You bring things people have done back up. You hold things people have done over them. Is it safe for someone to confess sin to you? And corporately, is our church seen in the community as a place where people can confess, as a place where people can find healing, as a place where people can find acceptance? Or do the people in our community look at the pain at their life, they look at the pain in their life, and then they look at us and they think, that's the last place I would go. That's not what we want. So are we, are you, am I, willing to give both grace and truth to the people in our lives? And are you willing to accept both grace and truth of Jesus in your life? Um, We really are looking forward to next week as far as our baptism. There's going to be at least four people, if not five people, that we're baptizing next week. And we're going to see a picture of that grace and truth being given. So if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, I think there's a word for you to just examine your heart. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, um, God loves you, but he also has standards at the same time. He calls us to repent. He calls us to repent. And he says when we do, that times of refreshment will come upon us. And we accept that. So if you'd like to talk with anybody uh, about some of what we talked about this morning towards the end of our service, there'll be some of us uh, lingering around the next steps area. So let me pray for us. Just pray that the Lord would really drive these words into our hearts in the way we need to hear them this morning. Lord, we thank you for the example that you've given us, that you exist um, mercy and righteousness. You exist in grace and truth. Help us to um, just hold those things together and not lean too far one way or the other in our understanding of you or in the way we treat others. Uh, Just help us to hold that tension. I think maybe you could call it a tension because that's the way you've presented your character uh, in the scriptures. And we praise you for being that way. Um, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.